I'm Sonia Morton Firth, and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today, my guest is Dan Aston Gregory, entrepreneur, thought leader, activist, and podcast host. After leaving his corporate job working in the banking sector for several years, Dan is now the founder of Elevate Media, a podcast production house. He's recently launched the Pandemic Podcast, which has exploded in a very short space of time. Dan has impacted the lives of more than 100,000 entrepreneurs, and he is pioneering a movement to elevate humanity by asking the questions the rest of the world seems unwilling to answer. I've got to say I'm really honored to have you as a guest on my show today. Um, the last time we saw each other, we saw each other just about a year ago in the flesh um, when we were together, when I was watching you on stage at Yes Group. I've known, I've known you down for a couple of years now when I was leader at Yes Group London and you're, you were leader of Yes Group Bristol. Um, and since then, you have done amazing things. And I've been watching you, the growth of the Elevate com community, which I, as I understand, has got the world, is it the world record, <laughs> the longest running uh, live summit? Is that right, Dan? Yeah, at the time it was, uh, we ran for 50 days straight, had over 75 speakers, reached over 100,000 people. It's the longest running live event at that time. I don't know if we've been surpassed because obviously it's the world, the world of online events has kicked off since that point, but we were pretty radical first movers um, uh, with that project. Well, look, there's loads that I want to get into. And I guess the biggest thing um, uh, for us today is, is really to talk about what's going on in the world as we speak. And we're moving out of uh, lockdown restrictions as, as we actually speak now. Um, but things changed for you, I guess. Um, and it all changed when you released a video. And the video entitled, which I love the title, I have been a coward, but I'm no longer willing to be silent. And Dan, this video went viral. Firstly, had you any idea of the sort of impact that this was going to cause? No, no. And put it this way, you know, I, I spent, 50, as I mentioned, 50 days straight doing Elevate Live, um, uh, working 12-hour days to produce content one, three, four, five times a day deliberately trying to go viral <laughs> deliberately trying to uh, you know get the content into the into the hands of many people um but that one video i would made a couple of the notes um i've been seeing the world unfold in ways that, that that uh it has um and there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that i was uncomfortable with uh, and i talk about things um uh violating my integrity gene there was things out there i just didn't think were, were right so I felt like I had to say something. That was why I titled it. Um, I, I, I need to, um, you know, I, I sat on the side. I forget the specific titles now. You're, you're more close to, um, but it was about having the courage to finally say something uh, and get off the sidelines. And I had no intention. I had no idea what would happen with that video. I just felt like I had to say something. You know, I was see. I saw these children going back to school in perspex boxes, being separated from each other and queuing. Uh, meters away from each other in the playground and I just thought these poor kids you know these are the these are our future and this is how we're treating them who's looking after their rights and you know at that point I wasn't I didn't know I was going to become a father at that point but we were we were talking about it and I thought this is not the world that I want my uh, my future child to grow up in so that was it was my point of leverage it was enough it was enough is enough because for months I'd, I'd had you know I'd been watching what was unfolding in the world and I had a lot of um concerns about what I was witnessing but, but it was such a so many contentious issues that I didn't feel comfortable speaking out about it but that was my leverage point and I had no idea the impact of the video but 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 within hours it was just thousands and thousands of people were watching it and by Monday morning 10,000 people who watched it by the end of the week 100,000 people have watched it and now over 300 well over 500,000 people have watched it across all channels now um and it's just unbelievable but but it gave me confidence actually in that moment that I'm not alone and that I was not alone in feeling the way that I was feeling because, you know, I think a lot of us have been observing what's going on in the world around us, but we have felt quite isolated, not only physically, but, but also mentally because, you know, what these issues we're witnessing, we kind of, can we talk about them? Is it, you know, if we, if we dare to challenge some of the policy ideas that come from government, is, is, is that okay? 
but but I, I just had to say something and that's that's what happened and I, I could never have predicted what followed. I mean, it takes a brave man, um, brave man or woman to actually step up into what I'm gonna, gonna say is, is, is your truth. And I think, you know, a lot of us may be sitting um, thinking that they should take a stance and wanna do something about it, but actually to take action must've been quite a hard thing for you. What was going through your mind before you did this? Was this something that you've been thinking about um, for, for months? Because it was it was August, right? So we'd already been in lockdown for three months. Was this something you've been contemplating? Yeah, it was uh, for a long time, actually. So back in last February, last February 2020, mid mid 2020, my wife and I went for our honeymoon in in Thailand. Um, so flying into Asia at that point, you know, we. We had started to see reports of uh, the virus in China, um, but nothing like we've become accustomed to. Um, so naturally, taking a flight into Asia, I thought, well, I better take a look at what's going on over there to see if it's suitable for us to go, because um, I was worried that, you know, if there was this serious situation that it may affect us. So I, at that point, began doing a lot of research. Um, Interestingly, it started with a small scale research trying to figure out what's happening. But when, when I started to see how the virus was being portrayed in China versus then the actual data, uh, even at that stage, January, February, that early on in the pandemic, there was there was already a giant disconnect between the um, media portrayal and the underlying data at that point. Um, so I, I did a lot of research around the virus. I did a lot of research around the response, uh, even down to, you know, should I be wearing a mask on the air, uh, on the airplane? Because you know, there were people in the airport wearing masks. I thought, my goodness, I, 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 do I need to wear a, a mask on the plane? And I found this report from uh, the Civil Aviation Authority, which gave me great confidence that, that it wouldn't be necessary to do so um, at that point. So, um, and from there, it, I just, my, I'm a natural curious person. You know, I love to learn. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an obsessive learner, actually. And when, when I get my teeth into a subject, I want to know everything about it. And that began a journey of research. And in, in that 12 months, I read over a thousand articles, over a hundred scientific papers, countless data sets. So I'd been reading about this stuff for months before I actually said anything. But the moment you did say anything, if I typed anything onto social media, into a comment or a discussion, it was heated. It was angry. There was vitriol. Any criticism of the situation or any critique of the policy would lead to this backlash of, of, of furious comments, you know, not 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 calm, reasonable debate. It was personal attacks. So I'd witnessed this in just comments. So I thought, gosh, if I, I, you know, I think all of that became a barrier to even being willing to speak about it. But as I said, it got to a point of being enough is enough. Uh, but, but I'd already by that point been thinking about it for over six months. You know, I, I'd really, I'd really had. And in fact, I stopped Elevate Live because I was no longer comfortable not speaking about the virus. But it took me, it took me, it took me months to actually then get the courage to do that. You know, I, I, I felt at that point compelled to start speaking about what I was seeing, um, but but it took several months of building up the courage to finally do it. It was, it was that it was that point of leverage that tipped me over the edge. Did you have any fear over? Um, I mean, what you did was a courageous thing, and I guess if I'm thinking about what people would think, I know you shouldn't think what people would think, but was there was there a fear of judgment? I mean, you know. You were being outspoken. You were talk. You were speaking against society, basically. What we're hearing on the mass media. We can go on and talk about that. Did you think you were? Were you in fear of disengaging with your audience, your followers, your friends, your family? Everything. Everything. So friends, family, business connections. Um, you know the the network in the, the the industry that I operated in, and the net the, the the network that I'd worked for a decade to build. You know, really really uh, influential uh, individuals in the entrepreneurship space and the personal development space. Um, there was even specific individuals I had in my mind prior to the broadcast. I was thinking, what will they think if they see this? Will they, you know, will they say, Dan, you know, get out of the politicians, you know, stay out of politics, stay out of the pandemic, stick to business. That was all going through my head. The fear of judgment, the fear of being criticized, the fear of, um, you know, being called uh, irresponsible or selfish or, or all these different things that we've seen happen at, that every time someone has said anything critical of the situation. I had all of that going through my mind. 
but it felt like my life my life to that point had trained me for that moment in the sense that all of the personal development I had done to that point was about finding inner freedom which to me is is to relinquish that fear of external judgment it doesn't mean I don't care what people think but it means I no longer guided by it and I no longer uh, trapped or limited by what uh, other people may think about uh, my views or, or my actions um, and, and I've gone through a lot of inner work to get really clear on what my core inner values are and one of those core values is integrity one of those core values is empathy and love and peace and gratitude so I knew that if I communicate with those values at the core even if people don't agree with what I have to say I will be acting in integrity and I will be operating from a place of inner freedom. And uh, I, I, had, I had to make that choice. And it was it's one of the most empowering choices I've ever made. Where do you think you get your warrior spirit from? Oh, well, I've been seeking it for a long time. There's been a yearning inside of me since I was a kid. I was quiet. You wouldn't believe it now. My team don't believe it. Um, but I was the quietest kid in school. I was no! <laughs> totally. I was. I would sit on the sidelines, literally, physically, I was very shy, I had no confidence, no self-esteem. You know, you've seen me on stage. I've done talks in front of hundreds of people. I would never have been, if you'd saw me as a teenager, you would think I'm a different person. Um, I, was, I, was, I was practically introverted. Uh, well, I was introverted, but, but uh, very shy. I lacked confidence. Um, so I, I, I spent a long time working through my own mental inner, inner limitations, my own limiting beliefs, the... Uh, my own fears and self-doubts um and i had a successful corporate career which gave me some level of confidence uh, in myself but there was always this what i call global confidence which is you know, i had situational confidence in my career where i could you know I, I knew that i had capabilities in certain areas but i didn't have social confidence or, or global confidence so uh, a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last decade is building myself up and building up my self-esteem and um, taking on my own self-limitating thoughts um, and, and really owning who I am, you know, really owning the man that you see today and uh, shaping and forging that person. And I think in doing that, I developed the warrior spirit, which was as long as my, and I've said it countless times, and I, it's been a mantra of mine ever since I left my corporate career behind, and thanks to some of the mentors I had in helping me make that decision, which was a big decision to leave corporate behind, was that as long as my mind still works and my heart still beats, I'll find a way. And that mantra has lived with me ever since. So every time, no matter what challenge I face, as long as I'm still alive, I can find a way. Um, and uh, that's that's been that's been that's underpinned the warrior spirit. But it's, I, I like listen, done listening to your conviction. You know, similarly to you, I was in corporate life, and 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 I I. I gave up that and, and then have been looking for my true purpose ever since and I think it is a it's a continuing journey the, the day we stop learning the day we stop growing is, is the day we die um, but you really have stepped into your conviction and it sounds like your voids that you had as childhood these voids of this 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 feeling of of being an introvert and being um, alone and self-isolated, you, you, you're overcoming those voids and, and, and really, Dan, you, you, you're, you're knocking the socks off so many people <laughs> and I want to take my hat off to you. Um, look, we're now a one year on, one year on pretty much since the day we were locked down. Who could have imagined if someone had said a year ago, this is going to happen. You're going to be locked up. You're not going to be allowed to go out. You're not going to be able to see your loved ones at Christmas um, or throughout the year. Shops are going to be closed. I mean, it would have been like some sort of science fiction film. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, we're now coming out of this lockdown into the summer of freedom, as, as people are calling it. I'm, I'm asking myself all sorts of questions about why did we not step up and question the rules why do you think dan that you know you've done so much research you've analyzed the statistics you've been looking at the data why haven't the rest of the population well i i i think it's underestimated how many people are i think a lot of what i've discovered is a lot of people are questioning it uh but but they're kind of silently questioning it um, but but let's let I suppose my journey to this point 
gave me some insights around how humans tend to interact, you know, the social dynamics, the individual um, psychology of the human mind, uh, in, the principles of influence, all of these things gave me a really, you know, through my journey in business and through my profession and studying um, human performance has given me a really interesting grounding on why people do what they do. Uh, not only on an individual level, actually, but also on a societal level and how, how, how societies work together and how herd mentality and crowd uh, mentality forms. And when we look at what's happening here, we have uh, a crisis of the unknown in the first instance. Uh, you know, this, this invisible pathogen that could be a, a risk and a threat um, to human life. Uh, and the way that it's portrayed early on made it, well, it's still portrayed in many ways, uh, is portrayed as though it's a deadly pathogen that does not discriminate and that everyone is at risk. And when you create those conditions of fear and that portrayal of risk, people lose the ability to self-contextualize the incumbent risk of the situation. And if you think about comparable situations like influenza, for instance, or the common cold, they are known quantities to us. And even though they both come with risks, and in some cohorts, and in fact, many of the same vulnerable cohorts, uh, come with significant risk. You know, uh, I didn't know this until the pandemic started, but the common cold is one of the most uh, common uh, factors that lead to pneumonia in the elderly. Uh, so it's, you know, we, we dismiss the cold because it's, you know, it's known. We, we know known, it. we get it. The same with flu, we get it. But, but, but with the novel virus, which just means new, um, we didn't at that point know what impact it would have, what risk profile it would have. Uh, but but by the time it reached our shores, the reality is we did have 90 days worth of data nearly. We did have we did have nearly three months worth of data um, on on the virus. And particularly at that point, it was relatively clear that this is an, what we call an age graduated condition in the sense that in terms of its severe risk of severe disease or mortality, you know, it's really a function of age. And, you know, the average age of mortality to this day in the UK is over 82 years old, which is. Older. Has that changed? Has that, has no, that changed? no, it hasn't changed. It's been the same since the outset. So that was my concern really from the beginning when I was looking at this. I was thinking we're actually asking 99% of the population to protect 1% of the population rather than one, rather than shielding 1% to enable the 99% to continue their livelihoods. Um, but then we have this piece around the oversimplification of science. You know, pe people can, pe when you make people believe that, the simple act of transmitting a virus from person to person could lead to death. People can understand that in their mind. They think, well, actually, if I spend time with any other people, I'm a risk to them. They don't think about that you're completely healthy, that you don't have a virus, <laughs> that actually a healthy person with a healthy person doesn't equate an ill person. Um, and we don't, we, we, don't, we don't start to think about, well, actually, what are the viral dynamics? How does transmission occur? Even if someone has no symptoms, are they likely to pass on the virus? And if they do, is that person like to get sick? And if, if they pass it on, will it, will it eventually reach someone that's going to die? That, that becomes a complex equation, which for most people, they haven't got the capacity or time or inclination to start to unpick. It's simplified down to you transmit the virus, you're going to kill someone. And that's almost become a marketing message. COVID-19 has become a brand. It has a logo. It has a marketing message. And as we know from um, uh, other big organizations, if you watch how they market and how they, 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 they create popular opinion, it's done through these marketing tactics. And it, it's no surprise to discover early on that the, the UK scientific advisory group had more behavioral scientists at the beginning than virologists or immunologists. You know, virologists specialize in looking at the uh, elements of the virus and the immunologists look at the impact on the immune system. Yet we had more behavioral scientists who were working to create the messaging to, to, to create the human behavior. Um, and of course, when you're in that situation, you have you have oversimplification of the science. You have the deference to authority, meaning that we we put our trust in in authority figure, figures and we don't question them and the psychology throughout time. And there's, there's, there's some interesting experiments I could talk to you about how, uh, how our rely, over-reliance on authority is dangerous. But we also have this solidarity principle, which is actually a really good thing. As a society, we want to do things for the greater good. But when that greater good is warped uh, for the interests of the, 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 uh, uh, 
the political aspirations, then we start to lose our way with what is actually for the social good and who decides what is for the social good and what factors should be considered within that social good. Because I've known for saying on my podcast, you can't save the entire forest by protecting just one tree. And by that, we focus so intensely on just things like COVID infections to the expense of everything else and every other factor of human society. And we've done that outside of the context of the risk, going back to the original point of how we contextualize risk. So it's a very complex equation. To, but it's, it's, been a, it's a massively complex equation. And, and I guess what you've just said that there, Dan, is you know that we had the statistics, we had the government, we had the government relying on certain people and maybe not others. But at what point did we as a, as, as a nation, um, as, a, as a country or as an individual, actually think for ourselves and say, does this actually seem right? Um, and, and I think, I, I think, and I, and I don't know, is too many people relied heavily on the news, the government, um, to tell them what we should be doing and listening to and believing, yeah. rather than actually trusting something that inherently seems wrong. I mean, inherently, keeping us locked up in our houses is not how we should live as human beings. It, it, it just isn't, isn't right. It's not healthy. It, it, it's not healthy. So I, I guess I'm back to, to questioning our own society and what, why we haven't sort of stepped up and questioned. Um, well, it's, it, it's exactly that, you know, it's, it's when you, and there's, there's, there's actual academic papers coming out on this now. And, and again, it goes back to the piece around behavioral scientists. And in fact, there was a, a scientific paper, a scientific model that was produced by a gentleman called Professor Neil Ferguson, a controversial figure anyway. Uh, if you look at his track record of modeling, it, I mean, he, he is the guy that you would go to for a doomsday scenario around anything. That if you were doing some business planning and you wanted to know the absolute worst case scenario for your business, Get in Professor Neil Ferguson because he'll make it look like your business has got a tragedy awaiting. It's 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 you know he has a history of that, and you know we've seen you know entire with the BSE for instance there was lives millions of livestock culled because of this model this gentleman has been behind some of the most damning worst case scenario models of all time. He's got a whole career history of that. Yet this is the man that we placed it our, our we placed our faith in when he produced this model of. Uh, you know the projection that five hundred thousand people would die if we don't do anything. But 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 we but that's but the problem with that is that even if that is in the small print labelled as a worst case scenario and not a prediction, well, it suddenly took uh, the guise of a prediction in the media, and all of a sudden, when you put that on the newspaper headline, boom! If we don't do anything, five hundred thousand people are going to die. All of a sudden, it's not surprising that you get people literally signing petitions saying, "Please lock us in our homes," and that actually happened. Hundreds of thousands of people wrote to the government said, "Please lock us down." Crazy. Which, but, but that's the psychology of fear in action. No one and, is and, and the part. So, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. you just mentioned the media. This this huge part, the mass media, has played in all of this. Yes. Yes. It's an amplification that you know, they have been an amplification amplification device. You know, they they have they've had they've never had it so easy. You know, the headlines every single day, this many cases, this many deaths, this many infections, this many hospitalizations, dramatic image here, dramatic image there. They didn't even have to use real footage or, or, or imagery from the actual pandemic. I mean, there's been so many there's been so many people who have identified well, actually that photo was from the 2017 flu pandemic. <laughs> you know, they, they haven't even used real footage in the news reporting necessarily. Uh, you know, these overcrowded hospital beds. There's been countless examples of where those overcrowded. I'm not saying that they weren't overcrowded hospitals, by the way, but I'm just saying in terms of media integrity, using footage that isn't even relating to the current pandemic. There was even there was there was one piece of footage that was used in three different countries uh, to represent hospitals. You know, Italy, Australia. And it was, it's just unbelievable. But so all of these things have led to a, a place where the public's perception, and you and I know from studying personal development deeply, is how our beliefs are formed. You know, if you see something on re repeat with emotional intensity, it develops a belief. And then if you really want, to, you know, and if you hear that over a year, of course your beliefs are going to be informed by the media. But then when you take an action that corresponds with those beliefs, i.e., washing your hands or wearing a mask or staying at home 
you're then complying with that belief and reinforcing, driving the grooves that it's the right thing to do. It becomes identity level. So it's no wonder why then we can't start to critique and uh, 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 challenge the policy because people have got, they're getting gut, gut, gut level beliefs that become very, very strong, very quickly with that level of reinforcement. Look, you know, and, and I might be a bit out there to say this, but I mean, it's, it's propaganda. Um, you know, you, you look at what happened back in the, the Second World War with the Nazis. I mean, Hitler managed to persuade a whole nation. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Was, you know, okay, I'm going to... Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not at any point saying that, that people aren't dying of COVID, and please, I hope anyone that's watching this... Of course. Um, ...who's known people, this isn't the case, but it's right. just... It's believing everything you see, Dan, like you say, and, 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 and without questioning... Mm. To some extent, is this actually the reality? Um, yes, yes. This, this, it's the, they're, they're, they refer to the science, right? And when you call something the science, you give it a badge. You put it in a you put it in a space where you are saying this is the science that we follow. You're not saying we are having open scientific discussion. And the newspaper and the media coverage of the pandemic has has, has been extreme an extreme example of where we have not witnessed scientific debate um and for many of the public therefore they do not they're not even aware that there is a scientific debate because it's 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 been censored it's been um smeared it's it's been woefully absent and you know even even last night you know i put a post about this last night because on the bbc panorama you know there, there has been a lot of pushback from the scientific community but it's almost in private quarters and in small fractions which then inevitably get go through a period of smearing because it doesn't it doesn't suit the uh, narrative but there is a lot of scientific debate around this but it, to the point last night on the BBC panorama we've been talking on the podcast about some of the the, the, the real problems with the testing protocols and the the testing itself is what drives the number of infections uh, in terms of its um, measuring the infections that is it's used for measuring and quantifying the number of people who are hospitalized it's used for quantifying mortality so if there's a fundamental problem with the testing process itself it becomes like a jenga piece in the puzzle that if you pull that out the whole tower can collapse down we've been talking about many different flaws of the testing process but of course there's this big pushback and rejection but now you know, 7.30 last night on the BBC, Panorama come out and say, oh, these tests can be contaminated. There's going to be a chance of false positives here, which is only one aspect of the problem. And everyone suddenly goes, oh, hang on. Maybe there's a problem with the testing. It's like, well, yeah, we've been talking about that for a long time. But that, that, that discussion has been suppressed. It's been censored. It's been removed from public discourse. So none of these key issues, and that's just one small area, but it actually is a fundamental one because it underpins everything. But it's a really important point that we ask the question, why has this critique? Why hasn't this investigative process? Why is no one saying, even from March, why, why aren't we taking autopsies or post-mortems of these deceased in order to establish the genuine cause of death? But not only the cause of death, to actually understand in those patients who tru truly sadly do die of COVID-19, what are the clinical factors and common commonalities that we can learn how to then treat those? Because we can see that there's inflammation in the lungs, for instance, therefore, well, perhaps we need to look at not only antivirals, but anti-inflammatories. But you only learn that from looking at post-mortems. Yet it was codified in the Public Health England guidance from March that, 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 that it was practically illegal to do a, a post-mortem, which, which was done on the basis of we won't have the time. But you have to make the time for those important pieces. And we've already seen now from Italy, I think it was Italy, there was a, there was a cross-section of 67 autopsies that were done, which were all categorized as COVID-19 deaths. Only two of them, following that those series of post-mortems, were actual COVID deaths. Mm -hmm. So two out of 67 were, had clinical signs that their, their, their cause of death was related to COVID-19, yet the other 65 were not. What but, do you think the government's trying to cover up? Well, it's a big question. The quite, are they trying to cover things up? It's, it's the, we have to also then understand the political dynamics, right? So it's... it's uh, <laughs> This is this is a very big question because people are saying that oh, there's this agenda. It's all being pushed. It's like a cabal. They're all driving this forward. There, there, there definitely are agendas that are occurring. You know, okay. but we, 
we don't need to go into conspiracy to see what they are because they're above no, and I think that's all been linked with it and it's why people are just sort of saying oh yeah it's another conspiracy theory and I'm sure I'm sure Dan you might have been tagged with the same brush as, as many people that have spoken out or you're just a conspiracist you know my mum said it to me the other day <laughs> <laughs> well, that, well, that goes. That's when, that's when you take it back to the propaganda level. Because again, if you look at um, tyrannical uh, governments in history, they will they will use smearing tactics and they will use uh, all of these different things to prevent any real critique of the government policy. Now, that, that there is certainly evidence of that, um, but uh, we also have a situation here where the politics. And pandemics certainly don't mix, and this is this has been very evident. Because if you think about it, the prime minister or the leader of the party or the leader of the nation, they have to maintain the popular vote in order to remain in power. So if you're in a situation where you have a crisis and you've taken the decision to have a lockdown, you cannot really go much stronger. You, you, once you take the extreme policy, where do you go from there? So there is this political dynamic that they need to be seen to taking action against this external threat. Otherwise, their, their citizens will start to say, you're not doing enough. So they're in this catch-22 situation whereby if they don't do something, their citizens uh, will, will, will protest. But if they do do something, you know, it will either not be enough or it will be too much. Uh, so it's this very difficult political balance. But unfortunately, Making political decisions in terms of managing a pandemic does not necessarily correspond with the actual uh, uh, priorities in terms of risk management. And risk, good risk management principles will not just look at the incumbent threat, i.e. the virus, it will look at the overall impact of any policy decision from a cost-benefit analysis perspective across every factor of human life. But we've not seen that. We've not seen that. We've only seen a very myopic uh, assessment of the situation. Well, well let, let's look at that. What, what is, I mean, we're, we're coming out of lockdown now, slowly restrictions are, are being are lifted. But what is the impact, not just while we've been in lockdown, we, we've all suffered, but the long-term effects? I mean, I, I talked to a lot of people on my show about mental health. I've, we've talked about suicide rates that have, have increased. Um, people are not getting out. The obesity is going up, not to mention how many people are turning to a glass of alcohol to, to, to drown their sorrows, alcoholism going up. But financial toll, business is closing. And then you've got the whole future of our children that are being that are literally going through this, seeing masks and, and, and having to wear masks. I mean, Sorry, Dan, what, what are your, your views on, on this? I mean, you're absolutely right. So, but here, here it comes back to some of the points we've already raised. You know, we, we, we've gone through an idea. What we're dealing with is an ideology of lockdowns. Lockdown, lockdowns have been made an ideology, but not only that, they've been moralized. And again, studies have shown that this has been moralized. So you create a moral argument that lockdowns are the right thing to do. It makes it very difficult to then dispute uh, against that, that policy. And by doing so, we, 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 we enter into a mindset that we must uh, save lives. That's the tagline we've heard, you know, protect the NHS, save, stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. It's a mantra, bang, 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 catch line, branding, marketing. It's, 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 it's messaging that's hit on repeat so it becomes a mantra. Uh, so stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. So that becomes our most important driver. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try and protect lives or the NHS or save lives. We definitely need to do that. But when it becomes the only thing we focus on, we, we eliminate the focus on every other important area. So, but we also have a very immediate and short-term focus. Now, when there is a crisis, and I've done crisis management training before in my corporate career, you have to take immediate action to deal with the situation at hand. But you need to do it in a contextual way. You need to make a, a very balanced and quick assessment of the situation. You make a, a decision rapidly, but then you don't have to stick with that decision once you've assessed the situation. You can then reevaluate, but we haven't gone through that. But nonetheless, here we are making these short term decisions and ignoring. And again, it's a political dynamic that the politicians, they're not making the 40 year play. They're not they're not looking 10 years down the line because they won't be in power in 10 years. They won't be here to pick up the picture. They won't even be here in four years time. We can tell that I can tell you that now um, to pick up the pieces. So they're making short term decisions. They're not looking at what is the economic consequences. 
And then, you know, again, I have to caveat the economic discussion because people say, well, lives are more important than, than the economy. But you can't you can't intrinsically separate them in that way. It's like saying your leg is more important than your arm. They're part of the same whole and you need both. You need both. And they are intrinsically connected. I was in financial services during the 2009 recession. Yeah. Now, following the 2009 recession, we went through a period of extreme economic dip, uh, de um, deprivation in areas. And the, the, the healthcare markets in, in times of significant economic deprivation are severe. We see a massive increase in uh, uh, serious disease and we see an increase in mortality over the longer term. So we will see deaths as a result of the economic de deprivation. We will see disease as a result of the economic deprivation. Not only that, we'll see we've got a mental health crisis that affects every facet of the population. We need to help people unlearn the fear. Uh, we have to help people uh, recover from trauma, essentially. Yeah, yes. uh, um, and we have to we have to find a way to, to, to make people comfortable around human beings again. But there's all of these other other damages um, from, you know, business closures, livelihoods lost. Um, uh, the the mental health and societal factors, but also the political dimensions, because what we've seen through this 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 period is we've seen a, a, an erosion of democracy. If you look at the um, there's an annual report on the democratic um, uh, on democracy every single year, and the, the scale has it's, it's the democracy has reached its lowest point since the the report began to be published. You know, it's it's descended, but in its place we've seen authoritarian decision making. We've seen erosion of the checks and balances. We've seen a power grab at uh, many governments, but we can look to history to recognize that many of these power grabs, people believe they're temporary, but history will tell us otherwise. You know, these things often become, uh, temporary measures often become permanent. So many people are saying, oh yeah, lockdown, it's nearly over, why are you still worried about it, Dan? Well, we've had our human rights suppressed. We still have our human rights suppressed. Democracy, democracy is eroding and we haven't had a balanced inquiry. We haven't had a uh, you know, we, we cannot just walk away from this saying it's okay to do what you've done. Yeah, in my view, that there, there, there have been crimes against humanity per, uh, perpetrated throughout this period. Yes, it's a difficult situation. I understand that. But this has been going on for over 12 months. And many lessons have been learned, but they haven't been acted upon. And I do believe that it's going to take three, five, ten years for us to look back and say, my goodness, what on earth were we doing? And I can already see it, the talking head TV, you know, you know, the types on TV, the talking head discussions, you know, talking about how do we, you know, we were locking up healthy people, you know, all of these things that we know, we, we, we've known for a long time are, are, not, are not the most effective way to manage this pandemic. But it will take until this is over for us to get to that point, sadly. I, you, you say this, um, and then it's still being perpetuated with the question of vaccines and um uh, we couldn't we couldn't talk about COVID and lockdowns without mentioning uh, the vaccines and how that is uh, actually it, it, it's separating society again. You, you know, it's um, you know I, I find myself um, you know I, I, at the moment I don't I don't want to take the vaccine. I'm not saying no and never, uh, but you know having spoken to my family, they don't understand my my decision. It's like why wouldn't you? And it's like, well, it's it's a choice. I'm I'm very fit. I'm healthy. I don't see a danger. As far as I I know, there are no. Um, there's nothing to say that this is going to stop me spreading anything. For a start, it's just going to you know slow down any risk of me potentially being hospitalised, etc. So why shouldn't I have the choice of deciding whether to do this or not? But you can already see it's fragmenting society. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. You've got to be careful of the V word. You know, if you're talking about yeah. the V word on a live broadcast, you can get censored. We've seen live censorship, so be careful. Oh, that. That's <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, the whole censorship thing is is absolutely ridiculous. Um, but look, look, this vaccine and this question of passports, I mean, people are saying now, and, and again, it's hearsay, it's what the media are saying. Um, oh, you won't be able to travel if you don't get your vaccine. Oh, we won't be able to go into pubs now if you don't have the vaccine and it's it i mean what are your thought, thoughts well, around on, that? On, on both those elements we're seeing the exact same social dynamics that we've talked about so we've seen the moralization of vaccinations we've seen an ideological um campaign around it we've we've seen it made a pro-social attempt it, it, uh, approach it's, it's been labeled as the um 
you're doing it for the greater good. You're doing it for your nation. Again, it's indoctrination in terms of that mindset. If you don't do it, you're, you're, you know, you're selfish. You're selfish. You're selfish. You're selfish. Now, but, but none of that actually addresses the underlying problem that firstly, the vaccines haven't been in the trials. This is factual that the trials only tested for the endpoint of symptom reduction. Uh, so if we know that the endpoint of symptom reduction is achieved, it means there's a less likelihood of someone getting severe disease and hospitalization and death, which is a positive if, 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 if that uh, manifests in the way that it's intended to uh, in, a safe, in a safe way. Um, however, it does, it, there's no confirmation uh, through any trial process that uh, transmission is reduced. So in terms of uh, whether person A or person B has it, it's irrelevant because if person B chooses not to have it, person a can still transmit it anyway and the the, react, the, 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 the difficult situation here is uh, in terms of transmission is that it because the viral load can still be high in someone who's vaccinated but they're not demonstrating symptoms they could actually be an asymptomatic carrier and to make the distinction between someone who's naturally asymptomatic i.e they've got no symptoms due to ex natural exposure to the virus that the chances are they'll have a low viral load and, and it's very unlikely, according to much of the science, that, that someone with no symptoms would uh, trans transmit the virus. But if you've had a vaccine and you're artificially asymptomatic, so to speak, because the, the vaccine is what's limited the symptoms, you could still have a high viral load. Therefore, you could become a vessel of transmission. So actually, this whole idea of being selfish is, is, is flawed. But it's also it's also we've also eliminated the idea that natural innate immunity <laughs> Is a thing, you know. It's 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 the, the, the we need to achieve herd immunity in some way, some form. But the World Health Organization changed the definition of, of herd immunity to exclusively be uh, achieved by uh, vaccination, which has never happened before in history. Because innate immunity, the natural immune response, acquired immunity from exposure to a natural virus, will provide will provide antibodies and T cell responses. So in the same way, but unlike a vaccine, which is only it's like an operating, it's like an app on your phone. It's only it's only designed to do one thing. Your natural immune system will respond to the different variations of the pathogen. So actually, your natural immunity in the in the in the healthy and young and fit is more responsive to any changes in the virus, whereas the vaccine needs to be manufactured in order to. to so that's why we're talking about booster shots and this like endless list of uh, vaccines that you'll need to have in order to stay safe. Whereas if your natural immune system is allowed to do its own thing then then you can uh, you, you can naturally tackle it now i understand that you know that there is there is an innate risk that comes with that but again our ability to perceive our own personal risk has been flawed by the perception that's been created through the media and the data that we shared so for someone in my age group i'm mid 30s um, i'm a very low risk category very low risk category of the virus therefore i would be quite comfortable in the same way i'm quite comfortable uh, my immune system will deal with the flu or a cold or any other respiratory virus. I'm quite comfortable that my body will produce a natural response and I'll get immunity naturally. And so far, the studies are very promising that natural acquired immunity is long lasting, as it was for SARS-1. Uh, so firstly, on the vaccines, that's the key point. We should have informed choice on that basis. Informed choice is, is not just about these elements of how effective the vaccine is, but it's also about safety. Uh, and, you know, there's a whole raft of issues around safety, um, the, uh, the lack of transparency around safety, which is it means makes informed judgment and informed consent very difficult. But when you take both of those principles and you apply it to a vaccine passport, you're in the same position. What, what difference does if you've been vaccinated or you haven't, you pose equal risk to society. So have, having having access to a pub or any service through a COVID certification it's futile. I've just submitted a, a report to the UK government looking at all the operational, the medical, clinical considerations around this. But here we are on the precipice of medical apartheid. There's no joke here. This is, we, we, I mean, Israel, the health minister for Israel said, if you're not getting vaccinated, you're getting left behind, meaning you won't have access to society. Yet we fought for decades to stop that happening from gender, gender, uh, you know, having separate separate facilities for men and women and and, 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 and tackling that divide. We've done the same with uh, racial equality. We've seen, you know, the uh, in, in South Africa, you know, societies divided by the color of their skin. Yet here we are in the 
2021 about to divide society on a health condition, a health, a health decision that should always remain private. Absolutely. And, and what do you say to those people, you know, and look, this is very simple, but just playing devil's advocate. Well, didn't you have the polio vaccination or the t tuberculosis vaccination? You know, that, that's sort of the, some of the arguments that I'm getting back. And it's like, well, yes, but it's completely different. It's a different pathogen. It's a different virus. It has different impacts. And it, but, but actually, we, we need to look at the, the idea that the vaccination is the only way to deal with medical situations we're we, we live in a world of innovation i'm an entrepreneur my brain looks for what is the key issue what is the problem and what what solutions are available to us and again in this this particular instance we've got a situation where we've got these therapeutics antivirals anti-inflammatory drugs as well as vitamin d vitamin c and natural treatments which are showing real promise yet how much time has been spent within the media or the government in the last 12 months talking about how to bolster your immune system naturally how much airtime has been allocated to these treatments that could significantly reduce the risk of the disease and death yet we are prioritizing vaccination so you have to ask the question cu bono which means who benefits and uh without getting into a conspiracy theory here you, the, there is there is clear evidence that private financial interests are having a drive a significant impact on the decisions that are made here and if you dispute that you've been asleep for a long time mm. because the, the world has been driven by money for a very long time they don't and, want to keep us healthy right that they're actually they, they, they want us <laughs> a sweeping statement but to, to, to be healthy, we don't rely on anything. We don't rely on, on medicines, things to keep us going. Uh, you know, by keeping ourselves healthy, fit, going for walks, going outside, taking vitamin T, D, which is which I've been doing for you know for years. All of these things that are that are natural, there aren't they aren't money producing. Well, yeah, if, if you wanted, if you wanted, uh, you know, rather than mandatory or coerced vaccinations, if you wanted a healthy population, you could mandate exercise, mandate healthy thing. You could, you could make cigarettes and alcohol illegal. Uh, but, but even even with those things, uh, you know, I, I think we, we if we go down that track of say, you know, we were talking about this on the podcast. You know, there's some people that say we should pursue a zero covid strategy. We lock the borders. We lock everyone up until it's gone. But they ignore all of the all of the consequences of doing that. We could eliminate domestic violence by putting CCTV in every room in your home. We could eliminate road traffic accidents by eliminating cars on the road. But we don't live in that way because we have a free liberal society where human beings are given authorship of their own destiny and they're able to make their own conscious decisions with the information that's available. But if we live in a society where the information is censored and the ability to actually access open scientific information and we're presented with one-way uh, ideology it becomes very difficult to live in that world so here we are in a situation willingly almost openly tolerating a divisive measure in society that will create a two-tier society without looking at all of the underlying factors that underpin it and it's 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 deeply concerning that we're in this place because I believe in uh, we're at a press we're at, we're at a point in time where we've got we will go we will go one way or the other, and I'm advocating for conscious change personally because I do believe if we help work with people and educate people about how to live healthily vibrant lives, then we'll create healthy vibrant people and we'll we'll start to tackle uh, bacterial or viral infections and serious disease. But but you're absolutely right. Why you know how much time in the last decade has been invested in the public sector? around driving positive health outcomes. Absolutely. Dan, do you think we're going to go back into lockdown next winter? I think there's a significant risk of that happening. I, there's a couple of, but there's, the viral patterns suggest that come mid-August, uh, mid-September, sorry, mid-September, we'll start to see a rise in um, influenza-like influenza illnesses, you know? So this is the category that most respiratory viruses normally fall under, including human coronaviruses, HCOVs, of which uh, SARS-CoV-2 is, is one. Uh, so we, we naturally see a rise in respiratory viruses at this point in the year rising into the winter. And there's a real chance that we're, if we see this happen again, regardless of, of actual impact, and if the vaccines are safe and effective, uh, as we've been told, um, we will still see infections, but we shouldn't see the hospitalizations and mortality that goes with it. But we've almost become trapped in the mindset of lockdowns and the ideology of lockdowns. So I think there is a real risk of that happening. 
unless there is a civil public response that challenges that ideology because I do not believe we can continue in this way. We must now learn to live with the virus. And actually, you know, there's, there's, I know I can already, already hear people saying, what about all the variants? There's a growing scientific discussion around the variants, which, which, which is based upon a hypothesis that lockdowns and mass vaccinations are driving the variants and preventing its natural evolution. And if you just go into common sense corner for a minute, just think about that. It's, it's, it's natural path of, transmission has been interrupted it has to evolve therefore to survive the virus only lives by finding another host so if you take away its ability to to move between hosts or you vaccinate aggressively and on a scale then it's a valid hypothesis that this could be driving the variants yet here we are in this mindset that variants are another reason to stay locked down well actually i think the variants are another reason to actually open up society based upon that hypothesis Wow, that's 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 really really interesting. I I love what you said and and hadn't thought about that. I just thought this was you know the variants were just yet yeah, and, and well another excuse for the government um, to use these tactics again and and, and lock us down and persuade. Well, they us. are they are in a way they've become, they've, to take the vaccine. Um, is the, there's, is, been, there's, there's been thousands of variants since the beginning of the outbreak. We just didn't hear about any of them. There was a major shift in the variant. There was a major variant shift in the early stages of the pandemic last year. It wasn't spoken about in the media, but now it's a lever. It's an emotional lever. People talk about variants now, but they don't talk about what, what is the actual evidence of increased transmission? What is the actual evidence of increased risk? What is the actual evidence of, of, of increased mortality? And if you try and find that evidence through the government, it's very difficult to get any compelling meaningful information so you're absolutely right we now know it's a, a lever to, 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 uh, that, that will cause people to go back into fear and when people are in fear it's easy to make them comply with whatever instruction that you give them yeah we're opening up we're opening up our doors we're opening up society we're back at events uh pubs are going to be open people are going to be going to the gyms we're going to be hugging each other again it's going to be back to normal and then you can see where the narrative is going on that yeah because like you say the 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 statistics will show that people are more that catching the uh, covid again and before long we're going to be we're going to be brought into this lockdown situation uh, it's a risk there's a very real risk now fortunately there's a lot of work being done by organizations like my own which are challenging these policy decisions um you know this summer with the g7 g7 summit coming up in cornwall um very important meeting where we're actually going to be demanding a global public inquiry into the situation uh, but, but, but beyond that looking at ways that we can actually develop solutions to ensure that any f future pandemic response uh is 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 proportional and, and evidence-based and, and, and balances the risks of the, of the virus itself with the overall needs of society and humanity as a whole. Um, and that's a difficult balance, but, but, but I firmly believe there is a better way. Uh, we understand very clearly where the vulnerable members of society are, but we must now return to an adult society where adults are able to make informed choices for themselves. Because I was speaking to someone in their 80s this week they don't want to be locked down. They would, they would, mm -hmm. by all intents and purposes, be considered in that high risk category. But they, they want to make that choice for themselves because what is life if you're only existing? Well, I think you've just knocked the nail on the head. Really, what is like, and that is all we've been doing for the past year. We've, we've sort of put our life on still pause, and we're all ready to click that still pause button and, and go crazy again because we, we haven't lived for the last year or we've lived a, a very different existence. Um, mm. now, now, you know, in, in terms of that, I think there are things that we, we can learn Absolutely. from this slowing down, I, I would say. What are the sort of things, Dan, that I guess going back to you, how have you changed? Who is the Dan now? This Dan that I speak to now, to the Dan I met over a year ago in February. How have you changed? In many ways, many ways. This is firstly, it's been the greatest personal growth experience of my lifetime. But beyond that, it's also been the greatest com conscious evolution. You know, it's 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 put me in a space where I'm 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 evaluating my own consciousness, and by that I mean how how do I interact with the world? How how is my 
how how do I fit into the, into the world, and what 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 does my own mind and body and spirit, what role does that play in 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 society? And throughout history, I've been working on myself, my history, my life. I've been working on myself to to get to a point where I can, you know, create a life that that that, that gives me the things that I thought I wanted. Uh, but now, uh, actually, and, and many of the many of the, many of the lessons I'd learned prior to this point, anyway, have come to life in the sense that if we change ourselves, we can change the world. And now, now my focus is is on about how do we how do we create humanity 5.0, which is what I call you know, it's, it's 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 the next iteration from the fourth industrial revolution. How do we how do we balance the needs of um, technological and economic advancement with societal and humanitarian um, and planetary evolution, because we've lived in a world of mass consumerism. You know, everything's uh, all of our thoughts are infiltrated by external advertising. We create these false needs and wants. We're divided from each other. You know, the fabric of society is eroding. So, for me personally, my own personal fabric has changed to really deeply care about humanity in the world we live in. And I. I truly in the last 12 months have made the commitment that I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to make the world a better place uh, and advocating for conscious leadership and, and looking at how we can use the principles of innovation in a sustainable ways to make the world a better place. Wow, Dan. What does that mean for you? What is the future? Is this Dan the politician? Dan the mayor? Are you going to follow in Brian Rose's footsteps? I I'm sure there are lots of people out there watching your pandemic podcast that would as well. I was hijacked the other day and propositioned to stand for mayor in Bristol. I, I, I politely declined that one. I, I've always said I'd like to make my difference from outside. Um, Right now, we're building a this idea of a, a global assembly, which will essentially be a forum for humanity, where we start to look at the key pillars of existence. You know, what does the future of education look like? What does the future of governance look like? What does the future of law look like? What does the future of sustainability look like? Creating these global discussions, and, and rather than in, in the way that the World Economic Forum have conducted these discussions, which is top down, you know, private companies, you know, deciding the um, trajectory of of the world looking at how do we create a truly democratic uh, uh, humanitarian approach or humanistic approach to, 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 to human evolution uh, and working together on how we can improve the world. So I, I, I am now working on different ways that we can reimagine um, and bringing together some of the finest minds with, with the members of the public and society themselves to actually look at how do we create a better world. Uh, but beyond that, looking at how, how I can lean on my own past, which is how do we how do we how do we awaken our own potential? How do we evolve and elevate our own consciousness? Because I truly believe change starts at home. If you change the person in the mirror, you can change the world. And I think that happens one person at a time. And, it, and the more of us who become awakened to our own potential and the more of us that can elevate our own consciousness, then together we really can create profound change uh, in many, many different ways. So I'm, I'm focused on how do we how, 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 do, how, do we, how do we create conscious change through humankind itself? Um, because at the root of every problem is a human. Um, <laughs> so if we, change, if, we can, if we can elevate humankind, then, then I think we can, we can change the world. Wow, I love that. Dan, I've got to thank you from, from spe for speaking from your heart, for acting from a place um, of courageousness, um, and, and really battling those fears because you've really stepped up. Um, your conviction, conviction and articulation of, of all of this has been absolutely top class and phenomenal. Um, look, I've come to my last question. I feel like I could talk to you and have <laughs> discussions all day and I'm dying to meet you in person. Um, but my last question, um, although I think you've answered it, is if you were to write a message in a bottle, um, for future generations to find, what would that message be? Well, um, that's a big question. How big? How big's the ball? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'd keep it right now. The first thing that comes to my mind is "be yourself." Simply that: be yourself. There's two words: be yourself. Because I truly, it, my own transformation right now and the ripple effect I'm able to create as a result of that is because I finally gave myself the permission to be myself authentically, untethered, uh, free from the fear of external judgments uh, and, and truly centered into my core 
uh, aligning with my core values and, and living and breathing version of who I always have been, but have not given my permission, myself the permission to be. So number one is be yourself. And if I got a big enough bottle, I'd write a whole story around my views on how you can do that. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much. It's been a truly an honor to have you as a guest on my show. Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. Great to be here with you. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like, and you'll get it straight into your inbox.